When something is stolen, when the provenance isn't clear, the issue is never quite resolved. I became interested in Holocaust art restitution because of the truth of art. The truth of the artist who creates it, the truth of the buyer who that art resonates with. But then the whole truth of the provenance of the artwork is the truth of genocide, it's the truth of destruction, it's a truth that cannot be denied. And restitution brings that truth to life. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was attorney Jan Fellman from a recent Second Saturday Art and Justice online gathering. What follows is a presentation by Ms. Fellman of her master's thesis entitled The Cancellation of the Max Stern Dusseldorf to Montreal Art Exhibition a starting point for a discussion of Holocaust art restitution issues in Germany. And after the presentation, there is a discussion on the U.S. approach to restitution, as well as the issues arising from the theft of Ukrainian art and cultural heritage following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The Max Stern Art Restitution Project is a project that uh, seeks the return of all objects that were stolen or confiscated in any way, no matter the value, from the Gallery Stern in Dusseldorf. It's a thriving gallery uh, in Dusseldorf uh, pre-World War II. And uh, it's uniquely able to do this uh, for a lot of reasons. One is that it's a nonprofit organization, and any kind of restitution takes an enormous amount of emotional commitment, money, time. Uh, work has to be worth, I don't know, what did Willie Carter say? A million dollars for it to begin to be worth it to work at restitution. But of course, the Nazis stole everything from the chandelier to the dustpan of many Jewish households. I mean, all Jewish households. So that by getting back everything, they are representing a layer of restitution that is impossible for um, the average person to even begin to think about. Max Stern himself is a unique person who was born in 1904 in Germany to a very um, comfortable family, very comfortable in Germany, uh, very comfortable in the art world. They owned a very successful gallery in Dusseldorf um, that was mostly interested in German artists and German artists of that um, place. Uh, he earned a PhD from the University of Berlin in art history in 1934. And his family uh, sponsored trips for him uh, throughout Europe, buying trips. He made connections with um, art people all over. So he's very well immersed in the art world. And he was also a very gregarious person that was able to be um, enmeshed in this world. Um, by 1935, they were, um, the Nazis started uh, claiming the gallery Stern and all of its work. And because of Max Stern's unique abilities and comfort in the art world, and because he knew a lot of these people personally, he fought back against the um, despoiling of his gallery. And people wonder, why did you give everything up? Well, you can see from his work and from the uh, work of the uh, curators of the proposed exhibition, how hard he tried to keep his gallery. And he has the final document that says, 
either you submit to an art auction at Lampert, uh, which was a Nazi-approved auction house, or we're just going to take everything. To complete his bio, he uh, escaped to England. Uh, he was interred in the Isle of Man, the way many Jewish males were, uh, who escaped to England because the British thought they were spies or something, which is so outrageous, but they did. And these include young boys who arrived in England on kinder transport. By the time they were 16, they were shipped off to the Isle of Man. Um, he was part of a group of internees that were shipped to Canada for further internment. He was logging in Quebec, finally made his way to uh, Montreal, and became associated with uh, the Dominion Valley, which uh, sponsored Canadian artists. He uh, was a great proponent of Canadian artists especially wonderful Canadian artist named Emily Carr from Vancouver. You might have heard of um, After the war, he had made many prominent connections in Canada um, through his gallery, and they gave him letters of recommendation to go back to Germany uh, when he went back on his fine trip to try to get restitution of his artwork. He tried to get restitution of only 30 works. These were 30 works that were of particular emotional uh, importance to him. And they were also works that he could prove by uh, description, by statements of other people that were actually stolen from him and not from the faux uh, auction, which uh, the restitution project has proven that they he never got any proceeds from the auction. So that's how faux it was. Um, anyway... He was uniquely qualified for restitution in Germany. He obviously was very familiar with the art world. He knew a lot of the players involved in the restitution process. He um, scoured art galleries, secondhand shops. He advertised in art magazines. Uh, he did everything possible to try to locate these 30 works, and he was only able to locate six. So if Max's turn himself, who was not a survivor of a camp, who did not have that baggage, who had many, many um, positive things to help him rescue, could only get six works back. It was virtually impossible for the average person to get any back at all. Um, when Max Stern died, he didn't have any children. He left everything to three universities, McGill University, uh, Concordia University and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And they set up the Max Stern Art Restitution Project. And it's one of the few, it might be the only one in the world that's nonprofit and that it has sort of a, it, finances are not a problem because the gallery was very successful. So they have an endowment from selling the work to the gallery. Um, and they are, their mission is to get every single work of art back, no matter the cost. And that is, that is giving voice to all the Holocaust survivors and all the families whose households were completely uh, demolished, saying that even your work worth a thousand dollars is important. It was part of who you are. It was part of what you value. And this is virtually impossible for anyone. Um, they had made, the project had made some, um, very good connections in Dusseldorf and they had uh, the museum had restituted one work of art. And they decided to have an exhibition featuring the gallery at Stern in Dusseldorf. 
And uh, one of the curators of this exhibition was my thesis advisor, Dr. McKenzie. And so I know a lot about the background, the uh, emails that went back and forth. And they had worked for three years on this project, and which is an international art exhibition, as you probably all well know, know is a huge endeavor. Insurance, shipping, you know, all over the world getting um, paintings sent back. And a tremendous amount of research to uh, contextualize the exhibition. Well, three months before the exhibition was to take place, after these years of research, the mayor of Dusseldorf canceled the exhibition. It was really unheard of in the art world. Uh, there was very, very little pushback. I scoured the newspapers in Dusseldorf at the time. There were maybe three letters to the editor uh, about this. Even though Dusseldorf isn't that big a town, and it's just going to be a huge international exhibition. And the mayor said outright that the reason that he was canceling the exhibition was because of uh, concerns about the request for additional uh, restitution of items in Dufferdorf Museum. So um, that is the background, and I use that for a starting point for understanding restitution issues in Germany. Thank you. That's such a, a great starting point, I think, for our conversation. And, and the thing that really, uh, I think, jumps out at me about what the project has done is helping to redefine what these kinds of sales really were, that they were sales under duress. Would you want to speak to that, Jan? Well, there were, I would want to speak to that in a, a kind of different way. That. When you think about how many people the Germans murdered and how many households they murdered, at the same time, they were taking every single thing from these households, whether it be in France and Holland and in Germany, everywhere, shipping them back to Germany and having uh, art auctions all over Germany at cut-rate prices for these items. So the average German could buy a fur coat, a work of art, a chandelier, a dustpan at cut-rate prices. This is the part of the uh, taking and and the part of understanding how auctions were just a means to uh, get money for the German government and also to pacify the German population. In other words, you know, your son may be at war, but look at all, you know, we're giving you something too. This, this war is going to work out well. See uh, some of the benefits right now. Um, after the war, uh, the United States decided that they didn't want to be in the restitution business, which certainly I can understand. They were still fighting in uh, the Pacific, for one thing. And they had enormous stores of these items all over Germany and everywhere. And what they decided to do, and the monuments were, monuments men were, of course, very involved in this, is to restitute the items, whether they be expensive paintings, or rugs or whatever back to the country of origin and have them restitute. The problem in Germany, as I allowed it to with Max Stern, was that many of the officials involved were not interested in restituting, but had some kind of affiliation with the Nazi art world. And Spiegel magazine did uh, a number of exposés on this. Um, 
some of the outrageous things they found out was that they opened the warehouse of these items for officials in German government and the government to come in and choose items for their offices. Um, if, uh, if they had taken an item from a Nazi, such as Hitler's secretary, she could then claim restitution for it because it had been taken from her too. So, I mean, the process of auction were and of giving of items is a huge part of the whole um, genocide process in Germany. Stole everything, that dehumanized people, and then you killed them. You then distributed the objects. You know, the expensive art item, art uh, objects were sold during the war, often in auctions in Switzerland. Um, and that money was of some significance to the German government. But other options of art pieces of varying value were used to kind of, I'd say, make the population feel better about being at work. One of the points in your thesis, uh, and we were talking about this just before everyone got on the call, was the rug. Right. right. So what Stephanie is talking about in this case in 2014, I believe, Spiegel, the German magazine, found a rug in Angela Merkel's office that they could document was Holocaust art rug. And she had it removed, um, but it wasn't clear, and I really tried to research this, what happened to that rug. According to the Allies' uh, demand, things, everything that the airless, what they call airless items, were supposed to be sold or given to Jewish organizations um, for the benefit of Holocaust survivors after the war. The German government didn't do this. They have vaults of uh, what they consider airless items in Germany to this day. I don't know whether this rug went into one of those vaults or went into just another office in Germany. But at any rate, she made, you know, she just said, well, we'll get rid of it. It's done. It shouldn't have been in my office. But a couple months later, she was in Moscow for talk with uh, Russia, Russian government. And at the time, they were having an exhibition of the art objects that Russian soldiers had stolen from German museums when uh, Russia was occupying Berlin at the end of World War II. And Angela Merkel is absolutely furious as she wants these art objects uh, restituted to Germany, and she is totally furious. But of course, uh, the principle of universality in law should apply. I mean, it's hard to understand how Germany can be demanded that, although I think that Russia should not be holding one's work. I'm going to make that clear. When her government is not... Uh, restituting in any substantial manner um, the vast work that they have worth millions of dollars in their vaults, um, as Spiegel magazine documents. And the German Lost Art Foundation, its creation and the work that it's doing now is kind of also an interesting way that it's supporting uh, the MASA project. Jan, if you want to kind of speak to that and your thoughts about how they support um, after canceling this exhibition, not only do they now support the MASA project, but also the Max Stern's family and business uh, project that has been started as a separate entity. Right. It, I mean, it's all very complicated in Germany. Um, and uh, to just go back to the um, 
Lost Art Foundation. Um, that's the focal point in Germany sponsored by the German government for the implementation of the Washington Principle, which you all might know are principles that were promulgated in 1998 in Washington, D.C. Um, they were pushed forward, and the great champion of those was Stuart Eisenstadt, an American diplomat. The strength of the of the principles is that they promote um, Holocaust art restitution in any country that adopts them, and some 40 countries have. The weakness of it is that all the countries have agreed to a fair and just solution as determined by the country um, that is restituting fair and just solutions, as we all know, can mean anything. Um, you know, the Lost Art Foundation picks and chooses what projects they want to be involved in. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to, um, come out against any project that's willing to open official doors and, uh, official documents. The Mossy project is a project by the heirs of, um, Mossy, who was, a, um, I guess a media mogul sort of in Germany before the war. He owned many, uh, prominent magazines and newspapers, um, all of which was confiscated, as was his entire art collection. And uh, he escaped to France. His heirs, uh, one of which Czech, I think, from California, um, have been uh, working to get his work back. And they're much more plugged in with the German government. They are not nonprofit. They do fine work in restitution, but they don't, I, I don't think they have the learning and the um, force to get everything back that the nonprofit heirs of the Nazi project do. Um, and of course, the the German Lost Art Foundation uh, doesn't address some of the major issues to art restitution in Germany. And one of them, I, I think, is just a philosophical issue that German law comes from Roman law, and in Roman law, a thief can give good title, you know, which comes to kind of shock probably to common law lawyers in which a thief can never give good life, give good title. But you can see but that mindset means in Germany, it would just make sense that if you bought something at one of these auctions, no matter if it was stolen, it's just yours now. And that is what the law continues to be. Um, so in other words, if you bought a piece of art from a Nazi, that's yours. You can sell it. You can do anything. Nobody has any right to restitution for it. One of the uh, paintings that Max Stern dearly wanted back was bought this way by a German woman. And he finally convinced her to give it back after he traded several other artworks for it. But she had no compunction to give it back, no legal uh, uh, position to give it back, anything. He just managed to get it back in another way. So the German Law Start Foundation doesn't address or isn't interested in anything like that. It didn't help the composition of the Limbach Commission. Limbach Commission is a commission in Germany um, which plaintiffs and defendants involving Holocaust art can submit to. It's non-binding. But their uh, their position holds some weight. Their evaluation holds some weight. Um, for the longest time, that is until 2016, there were no Jewish members to the Limbach Commission on purpose because uh, Monica Gruders, who was the head of cultural affairs, so, who I have heard speak, who very pro-restitution, shall we say, uh, 
is quoted as saying that they thought that they would be too prejudiced. Of course, other members of the commission were not vetted for um, their positions, you know, to be pro-Nazi or whatever, but there could be no Jewish members of the commission until uh, approximately 2017. Um, so the Lashlar Commission doesn't involve itself in these kind of difficult issues, which to me are some of the root causes of Holocaust art restitution problems in Germany. But I wanted to say also, uh, in favor of Germany, there's some amazing work being done outside of the government for restitution. Um, and one of those is done by this woman, Hilda Schramm. She's actually the daughter of Albert Speer, uh, the Hitler's architect. She inherited a few sketches of Speer. And uh, that he owned. And she didn't, though, she researched the provenance, and they were not Holocaust art related in any way, but her got her thinking, and she she is a green politician in Germany. She believes that every German household through some of these auctions has uh, Holocaust-related materials, furniture, dishes, artwork in their homes. And she wants to help resolve these issues in Germany. She started an organization where people are encouraged to value those items or outright give those items to her organization. And she then gives out grants to Jewish creative women, especially um, with that money. And so that is a wonderful out-of-government initiative. And another, if I may say, amazing out-of-government initiative was by the city of Lundberg in Germany. Um, they found out that um, the Heine, they had objects in their museum from the Heinemann family, which is a prominent Jewish family in their town, a very large Jewish family, been very generous in many ways, given to the library, actually given to churches. During the course of the Holocaust, their uh, items were confiscated, and the family was scattered throughout the world. Some children were sent uh, to England on kinder transport. Um, others were just in South America, U.S., Canada, Israel, but they didn't know each other. So their family, they lost their family. So they hired a genealogist to find all these people, and they had a welcome back to Lindbergh for the Heinemann family, and the mayor um, apologized for any actions of their citizens, and the heirs were so moved by like having the family, having their heritage returned to them, um, that they decided that they would donate these items back to the museum for an extended period of time with the proper problem. So there's all sorts of things happening. <laughs> that was, there's a, if you're interested, there is a video of that family returning that is very moving. To cover the, um, the other big shift and precedent setting points that we were discussing um, leading up to this call, uh, I know you wanted to touch on the HERE Act and your thoughts on how yeah. America's approach to uh, restitution has ebbed and flowed. And right now it's ebbing. <laughs> uh, I know, Stephanie, you've written about the recruitment case, which was um, a devastating case to me. The United States I tried to take a very, I thought, very thoughtful position on Holocaust art restitution. Um, members of both sides of the aisle, when I say both sides, I mean 
the far side of the aisle, came together uh, to draft the Holocaust Art Expropriated Recovery Act of 2016. It was signed into law by President Obama, and it's extended the statute of limitations for Holocaust art cases to December 31st, 2026. And that was the United States' um, attempt to uh, resolve competing claims by when sh by answering the question, when should a claim be considered fallow? How long should these claims be allowed to continue? But the case was gutted, I think, by a, by a Second Circuit case uh, in, coming out of New York. In 2019, uh, the Zuckerman versus the Metropolitan Museum Bar case. Zuckerman heirs claimed restitution for a Picasso in the museum, uh, in the Metropolitan Museum. The case didn't even reach the actual factual issues in the case because the judge dismissed the case on the equitable defense of laches. And laches means that the claim can no longer go forward because the plaintiff has not pursued it with sufficient vigor over the years. And therefore, the defendant, who may have changed their position in relation to the object, should not be penalized because of the plaintiff's lack of um, pursuit of their claim. Um, you know, obviously, this is what the um, Fear Act was supposed to address. The extent of the statute of limitations was supposed to say all these other claims were they don't matter. This is when the statute of limitations is. But the judge allowed this equitable defense, and the case was dismissed. The Supreme Court denied certiorari, and this case was particularly devastating for a few ways. One, it obviously affects the law. Two, they looked to legislative history to interpret the case, uh, but they didn't ask the drafters because the drafters all came out in an opinion afterwards saying, this is what, isn't what we meant. You misinterpreted the legislative history. You know, everything you said about the HERE Act is wrong, but the judge in this case who uh, had Holocaust survivors in his family, I was researching this case um, when I was a fellow um, recently for the uh, Lawyers Committee for Holocaust for a Cultural Heritage Preservation. Um, they were researching the case, and I did research for them in the case. And the judge had something like that in his background. Um, and most egregiously of all, I think, was that when you assert an equitable defense, I don't know if I'm being too legalistic, but when you assert an equitable defense, um, you're supposed to come in with clean hands. That is, the defendant is not supposed to have done anything to impede the claim. And uh, in this case, the Metropolitan Museum of Art um, had an incorrect provenance next to the, the painting. So that they had hurt the plaintiff's chances of obtaining, um, of knowing where their painting was, which could have been anywhere in the world. Um, I felt that this was just just devastating to Holocaust art restitution in the United States. And it, it changed my whole focus of my research because I began to wonder, like, why is it so hard to honor the honesty of a provenance of a work of art? What are, what are the 
the forces behind that. Can one not recognize that they've done something wrong? If you can't recognize you've done something wrong, you can't atone for it. You can't try to make it better. Um, so my research in the, in the future is focusing on the difficulties of being honest about the um, issue in genocide restitution. Um, very unfortunate case, but. Yeah, which is unfortunately very timely with all the issues that you were bringing up before about um, before the call started officially about what's going on in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, I think that that uh, it's very that all the issues of Holocaust art restitution are sort of being repeated and illuminating in the Ukraine. I don't know uh, the New York Times um, had a front page spread, and in other places of these art museums in Ukraine, which are now empty. Like, they've taken everything off the walls. In um museum in Kherson, I think they stole 15,000 works of art as they were, you know, being, fleeing out of the area. And it, they weren't, it wasn't done haphazardly. They had um, uh, art experts from Moscow and Russia saying which works they wanted, how they wanted them, and all of that. And the museum is totally empty now. So we don't know what happened exactly to those 15,000 works of art and everything else that they've been stealing, artworks and otherwise, throughout Ukraine. Um, there's been some talk that they're in the Crimea now, but uh, we really don't know. But if you put it in this context, if a Russian soldier takes one of those works of art, sells it in Belarus or, or southern Poland, Vienna, these places are not very far from uh, Ukraine. Um, is that buyer an innocent buyer? They have, the Russians have stolen and gutted the cultural heritage of Ukraine. So what is, what is that worth in comparison to the rights of the innocent buyer? And it even is that person an innocent buyer? You know, a major, this is a major issue in Holocaust art restitution, which is harder to see in retrospect, I think, but easy to see in this context. Um, I personally don't think that anyone buying this Ukrainian art right now is an innocent buyer. I mean, how could you be? It, you, you would have to know, like, where this art came from. Um, the Russian soldier would have to have a provenance, and how could he? You know, what would the providence be? I stole this from the museum in person as I was leaving the city, and now I'm selling it to you. So, um, I mean, these issues of restitution, whether they be about the Benin sculptures, Ukrainian art, Holocaust art, they're all about uh, the cultural genocide of a people. And art and its provenance doesn't lie. So, if you really know the provenance of a work completely, whether it be a Ukrainian artwork, a Bedouin sculpture, Holocaust stolen artwork, then you understand the art of a genocide. And then we can begin to address the issue more completely. And I personally would like to see no one ever buying or looking at a Ukrainian piece of art stolen until it's returned to the museum. Otherwise, you're just incentivizing more stealing. In other words, if that soldier gets a considerable amount of money for that painting, that Ukrainian painting, why wouldn't he be incentivized to just keep stealing? 
and other people be incentivized to um, feel the patrimony of the cultural heritage of people. It's it's so interesting how uh, the shift of of your research has developed, and in this, the way you put it to honor the uh, honesty of a work's provenance. You could just uh, really see where uh, we need that right now, especially with the points you're just making. Um, yes, I, that is really the beauty of art. Is that um, to me is that it's it's just the honesty, the honesty of the creator, um, and then the honest how that resonates with other people and the context of the time. Um, but also, it's it's past. Is uh, is is honesty? It's just it's honesty that can't be denied or relativized, and uh, it is very sad. But uh, in Holocaust and genocide studies, a significant um, portion of it is in how uh, genocides develop, and one of the ways they develop is by um, making the people be to be killed, uh, dehumanizing them. And that is taking away all of their culture, everything that makes them human and who they are. Um, they're in the UN definition of gen- Holocaust and genocide, they were going to put in cultural genocide. That is, you don't have to actually kill the ethnic group, but just take away their culture. And that is genocide. For various reasons, that wasn't included. Um, but um, I think artwork shows um, the stealing of artwork is part of uh, the art of genocide. It's part of the dehumanization of the people, um, which eventually leads to the murder. But then after the genocide, a significant issue is that people try to deny what happened. So you try to deny what happened by saying, oh, the artwork's really mine. Uh, it didn't, it's been so long, so there's no need to give it back now. What does it really mean? All you really want is the money. Anything that's denying the uh, cultural importance of the object to the person. And it's also a way of denying that they did anything wrong in the genocide. Because we could just forget about that. Um, and it is truly shocking how often the world not only in this case Germans or Russians, try to forget about what happened, and I guess that's a natural thing, but how much the whole world participates in it. Um, you know, this isn't the first time Russia has uh, culturally genocided Ukraine. Of course, they did that during the whole of the 1931 to 33, and at that time, they I don't even know why there's any artwork left in Ukraine, actually. Because they stole all the artwork then. Um, they refused to have Ukrainian language spoken. They, they destroyed, besides, um, leading to the murder of five to seven million people. But the world essentially watched that happen. And then Stalin and other people were involved in denying that it ever happened afterwards. So again, we're seeing a repeat of that. And I would like to think that if we had recognized that either through uh, tracing the Ukrainian artwork stolen at that time that, or other means that, um, that would have been helpful in, um, 
identifying and understanding the practice of, gen- of the many genocides that have gone on in the 20th, 20th century in the world. They're just one after another. The the other factor uh, besides uh, for the genocide when you were talking about creating this subhuman category for uh, the group that's being targeted, but also the groups that are bystanders, the, the lack of empathy that we have in our society that yeah. allows us to be bystanders is another concern that I think some, some have been raising a lot lately that we need to have uh, our new generations coming up be more rooted in empathy. Well, also you have to consider what is a bystander. Are you are you a bystander if you know that you're going to museums that have uh, stolen artwork on their walls that um, you know that they have refused to restitute? You know, Spain has very strict ideas about restituting. They consider that they were a neutral country in World War II, and so that any artwork donated to them. Um, they have no, um, they have no reason to restitute it. So, I mean, I don't want to, I know things are complicated, but if you are enjoying museums that have that policy, are you really a bystander? I think the definition of bystander needs to be rethought. You know, if you are, um, if you are attending auctions of Ukrainian artwork now, are you a bystander? I, I don't really think so. Um, I think, um, bystanders in some ways have given have been given a path. But to me, if you are participating in any way, then you move along that continuum of bystander to perpetrating. Has your uh, concept of justice evolved? Uh, well, as I said, I was a litigator and a labor lawyer. So I had certain U.S. ideas of justice. But with Holocaust art restitution, as I was talking about with the Angela Merkel situation, I mean, universality is like key feature to justice. I mean, if you are not in this context willing to restitute the things that you own, it should be restituted, that you've promised to restitute. Can you really honestly demand restitution of objects that were stolen from you? And, um, I think for me, universality is a key element of justice that Holocaust art restitution is really ratified. Andrew, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I was just trying to, I mean, there's a lot, yeah, a lot of, a lot of places to go, but I'll just, I guess, start here. Um, in terms of the Met, like, I, I know that they've sort of like had some publicity over the years. Um, and I'm wondering sort of like why they wouldn't sort of like voluntarily get on the right side of, of an issue. And I don't know if they're concerned with, you know, liability down the line, bad press, because I feel like this, the accretive value of doing the right thing might outweigh any of the negatives. I don't know if people need to be, I don't want to use the word, but I guess as lawyers, immunized, I guess, to sort of like, okay, if you, if you give it up, then, you know, no personal liability for the board of directors. You just like, we just get it back to the right place. Um, I'm wondering if that kind of model, I guess that might take legislation or what have you, or maybe somebody promises not to sue if I could just get it back. Um, but it's sort of like, it can't be good for business to sort of be, have the headlines being your recalcitrant, but somehow they've made the calculus that it is good enough to just hang on and, and, and suffer the bad headlines. So 
I was just wondering if you can speak to that, like why they would just like more be willing to do the right thing. Well, I've researched that to some extent, and it is very puzzling. One of the things is that uh, museums have like a very acquisitive, <laughs> they want to acquire things, and that's part of what they do. And uh, their mission, is, they see, is to showcase showcase this art, and that mission sometimes takes precedent over uh, doing the right thing in this case. Um, also, uh, it's very difficult for them to give up something of value. What would that mean towards other donors that want to donate things? Would they be um, less willing to donate to you, to that museum? Those are some of the issues involved in it. Um, but mostly yeah. I just think it's the, uh, the concept of the museum wanting to acquire. In other words, like, why doesn't the British Museum at least negotiate about the Algin marbles? You know, that they just consider it part of their heritage now to own those marbles. I don't agree yeah, with a, that, obviously. It's kind of like we're like museums, like between deaccessioning and between the stuff they keep in the basement and the way it receives anyway. Wow. You know, sort of like, <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's just, I know. I don't know. Just stuff and, and just stuff that could be enjoyed or they just want to own stuff. I mean, it's maybe an essential nature of a museum. Uh, but you would think, and I would think that some of the board of directors would be embarrassed about these kind of cases. Um, but I think with the, um, the quality of being a museum and being on the board of the museum makes you want to keep up this acquisitive donate, um, get more and more donations, even though your museum is full and your warehouse is useful. Um, and I think for some of us, you know, we've been here for a while. I mean, a theme I've been before. I think they, they know their audience, which is to say society writ large, because, you know, they're counting on the fact that, you know, you can wear down somebody who may not have the resources. Exactly. Or, as we said, the longevity, who are like, okay, it's been 70, 80 years, you can, I can wear you down. And exactly. if you have to explain these things to a common, like, you know, who can't find Benin on a map, I mean, it's just like, okay, so what? And I think that's sort of like they, they, they're playing a game of knowing, just knowing <laughs> the audience. Right. It's sad game, but I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Just one more point uh, from all of this, I think, is uh, just the way the HERE Act, you you touched on it, that the, the writers, the drafters of the HERE Act weren't heard. Exactly. Exactly. And it's so strange that they would use legislative history to determine that equitable defenses could be uh, used against the HERE Act without talking to the legislators at all. I mean, they were irrelevant. So what that said to me was that the judge was just picking and choosing any way he could. People who are against restitution will um, go to any lengths, you know, grab any straw, to justify their actions, definitely. And um, that's the beauty of the artwork itself. If the provenance is clear, you can try to do that. But if you really have a clear provenance, uh, eventually, hopefully, that the truth of the artwork will come in. The truth of their, the art's journey will come in. In respect. <laughs> the thing I uh, found uh most obnoxious to me about the Zuckerman case, there were many points, but one of them was that um, that the the Picasso's the actor was given 
to the Met. They didn't buy it. They weren't out anything. It was just given to them. And that to me, I don't, I, I was shocked that no one else thought that was more important. Oh, definitely. It's more important. That's the case of many of the, um, difficult restitution cases. Uh, somehow it's given and now it's mine and I have to keep it and I have responsibility to the public to keep it over any sort of justice. But just as an aside, a, a case in Vienna about that was uh, Alma Mahler, who was the, one of the queens of Vienna because of her uh, husband. She escaped Vienna with her third husband, uh, Gate. In the course of her escape, a Kokoschka was taken over by the main museum, the Belvedere in um, Vienna. Well, she worked her entire lifetime to get that back. Her granddaughter took up the cause to get that back. And finally, in like 2015 or something, the granddaughter got it back. So this is Mama Mahler, one thing, a Kokoschka from one museum in Vienna. And that, and that painting was donated to the museum. I mean, there's, I don't know. I love museums, but it's made me very sad about the museum culture with that. Sorry, did you say that Spain is hanging their hat on their professed neutrality as a, during World War II? Is there, in Vienna, they weren't neutral. No, they just claimed that the case was somewhat complicated. They claimed that the paint, this Kakashta, I mean, Spain mm-hmm. would, uh, hang their hat on their neutrality. Vienna was not neutral. Okay. Uh, I mean, although the Allies said it was neutral afterwards. Right. I mean, I guess, yeah, I mean, but <laughs> Spain, I mean, but, but, but Wernicke came because the, the Nazis were practicing their tactics in Spanish. I mean, so Spain, I guess, was formally neutral, but not really. So I guess, but again, exactly. history and details, right? <laughs> I mean, the history and details don't really matter for me in the, what's right. But as I said, in their fair and just solution, saying says, oh, we were neutral. So anything, even if it was stolen, and there has been major works of art that were stolen and were donated, and this is all documented to Spanish museums, they just say, oh, never mind. And there's nothing that can be done about it. Yeah, about, about as neutral as somewhere that actually serviced U-boats can be. <laughs> Just like a fair and just solution can just be anything you think it is, you know. You bought it from a Nazi, well, it's yours, that's there, you know. I mean, an interesting thing about Holocaust art restitution when you study it is how really different, different philosophies in different countries are and how that impacts, you know, and how that impacts Holocaust art decisions. I was saying about Germany, and this is true in various parts of Europe, the civil law code is that a thief can give good title. Well, that just changes everything, really, as opposed to the common law where a thief can never give good title. So each country has a way of thinking about it. Sorry to interrupt there, but but, yeah, we had until very recently, we we had a concept called markets overt, and there were certain markets in the UK where if you bought something at that market during daylight for a fair market price then it was yours you got good title to it and that was only abolished about 10 15 years ago so yeah. you know that was a very you can, you can imagine what the, why they abolished it you can imagine what was going on at those markets 
I mean, it was just basically just legitimate fencing. Right, exactly. And it it the that it seems almost more important to get the objects that are not of great value because they have a very important story to tell about the participation in the general population of this stealing from Jews. And of course, another aspect of genocide studies is that uh, genocides don't occur without some kind of mass cooperation, turning the eye of the general population. And when you see all these small items all over the population, you see that somebody participated in some manner in the genocide by accepting these items. So the story of the least expensive items, which are almost impossible to have left to people, are in some ways the most important There will be links in the show notes to learn more. If you were intrigued by this podcast, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law Podcast. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.